From Revenue Rhino, I'm Brad Hammond, and this is the Lifelong Customer Podcast. Welcome to the Lifelong Customer Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Hammond, and today I have Yell from Divs Capital, also goes by the name of Solid Block. So, Yell, it's really nice to have you on. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, I'm excited for today's discussion. So, can you tell me a bit about yourself and who you are and then your company and what you guys are doing? Absolutely, Brad. So I am an entrepreneur who started in the capital markets about 20 years ago on Wall Street. And since then, I've been going down this rabbit hole of investments and everything related to investment structuring and uh, different uh, type of uh, institutions and uh, private investors and capital and so on and so forth, structuring deals and watching money move basically from one place to another and learning about how to facilitate the, the liquidity and how to you know, make deals happen. And that was fascinating for me to always see the bigger meaning behind things. I'm a kind of a macro person watching money moving between a few times, just a few investors that are in every market, right? Because they have the power to make the money move. So looking at that trend, I was always thinking, wow, this is a huge opportunity. If we could democratize that space, and then we can have a lot more, give a lot more power to other types of investors and also give more Uh, tools to the businesses that need capital, right? And specifically, I'm talking about smaller businesses that need private businesses that need capital from time to continue operating, especially in times like right now when money just does not grow in trees anymore. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So that's a little about me and about what we're doing. Uh, Four years ago, we started a company called Solid Block. And the premise was to enable private businesses to Uh, take advantage of more access, bigger access to liquidity and to private money. To to this day, most of the businesses and large, especially in real estate, the industry from which we started operating, most of the investors are private equity firms, large investment banks. They will come in and partner with hotel operators or entrepreneurs, and they have more tolerance for lack of liquidity. They can sit there for 10, 20 years, sometimes waiting to get their money back. And they're fine with that. They have enough capital. But we wanted to make these opportunities available to investors that want to invest maybe 10, 20, $50,000 at a time. Uh, not quite the retail public, right? Invest maybe $100. And this, that they can use the stock exchange, right? Uh, with more safe investments. But if somebody wants to take uh, a certain level of risk and you know, invest in a business, which by the way, tomorrow maybe will not exist anymore because there's COVID-20, uh, God forbid, in the world. So take a little bit of risk. I want to make some money. Either yielding, invest in a yielding asset or maybe invest in a growth stock of private equity of some kind. And that's basically was our premise for our platform where we made operating and managing assets really easy, issuing these types of securities really easy because these private businesses, they don't want to go public on an exchange and pay a lot of money. And they also don't want to manage these financial aspects. They just want to do their business. They just want to develop their business, make money and share the money with people who want to take the risk with them. 
So we're like, this is great. We can use our technology knowledge. We can use our knowledge of the financial markets. We can use our business development skills and connections and network. And that's how SolidBlock started. And we worked on this large deal called the Aspen uh, coin, which um, digitized the security issuance of Aspen, Regis Aspen Ski Resort. And from then on, we did a couple of other real estate deals. And recently we merged with a, a broker dealer in the U.S. And we are now together as a group called Dips Capital, Distributed Investment Bank. And that's where, that, that's where it comes from. At the same time, investors can technically call dibs on early, early access to great companies, great real estate assets, and so on. That's where we are today. I love that. I love the name too. So it's a great name. Yeah. Uh, so how do you start a company like this? What does that early journey look like? What does it look like to acquire the first customers and then to grow up from there? That's a great question, Brad. Starting a company usually is fairly simple, just as a structure. And actually, when you have a seed company, and there are some investors, especially if there's liquidity in the market, and liquidity meaning there's lots of cash available that's fairly cheap, and different institutions take advantage of that, borrow that cash from banks and so on, and now they can deploy it, meaning they can put it in different companies. And um, in times of economic expansion, money is abound, and the, then early stage companies enjoy right from that investment. So back in 2019, when we got our initial investment, it was actually quite an opportune time back in, back in those days. And literally two months after we got our investment, COVID hit. And we were like, we now have to finish the round, but nobody is investing, right? We got the lead investor. Nobody else is investing right now. That's a different story, right? That's the, that actually what brought us like to this point today. But anyway, we started a company, actually my uh, co-founder started a company and he managed to get the project first and foremost, right? So he and I actually had the same kind of trajectory uh, in the security space. We realized together that, but separately, and I had a similar company where we decided to come together. Uh, but both of us realized that the regulation in the U.S. is changing and is changing in the direction when crypto came out and also blockchain technology came out and lots of companies were raising funding for um, whatever businesses, but they were using tools that were not approved by the SEC, which is the governing uh, body for compliance of fundraising in the United States. And I had a long career in capital markets and my previous co-founder also understood it very well, having had several startups and we're like, this is a great opportunity to use the same technology, but to raise money in a compliant way. So how he started the company, basically, he actually first got this project. So it, it happens quite a lot where you first get a client and then you convert what you've built into a platform and go get more clients. It was really helpful for us to have this initial track record in our early fundraising and then getting new clients. And actually, I've seen a lot of people that are maybe slightly older than your average startup founder, 35, maybe 40, 45 and that's how they get started. They will work in a specific industry for a while, acquire a lot of knowledge, understand the problems acutely. Then maybe they'll go to become an advisor. They'll put, put their job, start working on something, have a fantastic opportunity in the name of a client that, where they get to solve their problem like we did. We had the tech knowledge 
and also some securities knowledge. So we, we did the first ever blockchain smart contract for a security issuance. And so that was the first project we did and got paid for that project. And then we said, okay, now we can scale this. And that's how it started. And that's how this specific company has started. And both of us acutely understood the need because we've been entrepreneurs for a while, raising money and understanding that it's not enough for a startup to have access to a couple of VCs that don't even understand the problem so well. And, and, and we have to, most of our day, spend fundraising instead of building a business. And if we spend more time fundraising, we spend less time building a business. If we spend more time business, building a business, we're going to run out of money. There's no access for us to capital markets, so to speak. Both of us acutely understood the need, and which is also very helpful. So you have a client, and then you have a project, and then mm -hmm. you say, wow, this is a great opportunity. Let's start a company in this space. Where does it go from there? How do you scale that? Is it now, okay, now's the time for fundraising. Let's go raise the seed round, or mm -hmm. let's go try to find more clients that were like our mm -hmm. first client. Like, how do you... What's yeah. the strategy to grow and scale from there? That's a great question, Brad. And that's what I really don't like about the startup industry in general. Like the startup CEO has to be the jack of all trades. I mean, it's true that you get paid handsomely in the case of success, but very few companies succeed, right? So as startup CEOs are like overworked, they don't sleep. And that actually, um, at the end of the day, uh, creates issues with performance and you can't focus on the right things. So startup CEO has to be the jack of all trades in the early stage startup. Like generally startup CEO is looked upon as an investment banker for their own startup. They have to go and pitch their startup to as many investors as they can. Sometimes if they have a good execution partner, like they have a co-founder of some sort, which again may create some friction because they may work very well, they may not work very well, but if there is a great balance between them, one is a fundraiser, another one is really good at managing a team and executing the strategy, then it might work out, right? Because you have one person managing the business, the other person going out and fundraising. A lot of times there might be a single founder company and the founder needs to do both. And it's super, super difficult because these are two separate skills. One is a storyteller and a visionary, which is a one set of skills. If you look at employment testing of our character testing, there's the driver people that are really good at vision and creating strategies. And then there's execution people that execute COO types, you know, a chief, a chief operating officer type. And usually these are not the same people and it's very rare. And so it's very difficult. And that's, it, it again, underlines everything that we're doing. I think the startup CEO or any company CEO, it's a chief executive officer. How chief executive officer, executive being a keyword, became the chief fundraising officer is unclear to me, but that's how it is in our industry. And we, and I frankly want to change that. The, the company CEO really needs to be able to manage the company and, and strategically, right? So just like Apple CEO, you know, Facebook CEO and so on. But in a startup, it's not the same. And then you leave the fundraising to the professionals, right? That actually do that type of work in the capital market, broker dealers, syndicators, people that understand how to make money 
with money, right? They buy stock, help it grow strategically. Uh, most VCs, by the way, are not strategic whatsoever. And that's a mistake in my mind. And actually have investors look at private equity firms, look at these investments strategically, come with clients. You asked about clients. This is how it should be done. Clients should be able to actually invest in a company. And it's happened with us. We have several clients that actually invested. And uh, especially early investors, they will use the product. That's the best outcome. So we try to do both at the same time. It's extremely difficult in, in execution capability because you have to do sales at the same time. And you have to also sell your company at the same time. And usually you need track record, which we were which we were uh, lucky to have and uh, fortunate to have with the Aspen coin to bring additional clients on board. But initially, when you are cash poor, you might bring on clients that are not necessarily the best for the long term. So really, there's so many contradictions and so many pitfalls in, in the middle that this industry should really have a different mindset for operating, very similar to a public company which operates much better. And again, I think, and I believe with all my heart, with our solution, our platform, we're going to get there. Absolutely. Any major lessons learned as you're going through that journey? I think, you know, you said there's like these different skill sets that are needed, which I can totally relate to. I'm more of the visionary salesman type. And yeah. then definitely rely on my team for all the operations and making sure we're getting all the T's crossed and I's dotted. Any major, wow, we learned this or I uh -huh. see that or any lessons in yeah. there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of mistakes were made, which I'm very um, grateful for in a way. And we learned a lot. And from what I said is number one is this industry needs overhaul. And we just need to change that. It's Yes, it's great. You are raising superstars. And by the way, a lot of times you're raising superstars, but a lot of times capable people just go back and get tired of this entrepreneur lifestyle and can't handle it. And brilliant managers that could be managing brilliant companies into hyper growth, they go back into working for large corporations and for safety, for just getting so fed up and, and sick and tired of raising capital. Um, that's not necessarily when an entrepreneur goes to solve a problem and they, they're so passionate about it. They're like, I really think that with our solution, we'll be able to help millions of people. Like it's so beautiful. That's how many technologies were born, but then not everybody is meant to be Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. You have a lot of brilliant people that are brilliant managers but maybe are for whatever reason, not translating well with these specified, very in investors that are very much set on certain criteria when investing in a startup. And that's the lesson that I learned. So it's difficult to fundraise as a woman, as far as I, I, statistics are concerned. Like I never, I will never know and will never know. Women will never know. If the reason they're not getting investment is some sort of bias or it's because their company sucks or their pitch sucks, like we'll never know. Um, but statistics show that only 2% of women founded startups get funded or something crazy like that. So there's probably some truth to that. It 
women can suck that badly to get to to not get funding in the later stages but that type of thing would eliminate budget it would eliminate this bias right and on the other hand women make amazing managers right and and are great at executing and that's actually also statistically proven that there's some advantage to to women as managers and drivers being in a driver's seat of a company. And so that's what we need to solve. So that's pretty much the lessons learned in addition to what I told you, like mistakes of going after maybe not the right type of client because you're cash poor. And it all stems from the lack of liquidity, even for great companies with great technologies. Absolutely. Yeah. Crazy issues out there today. Most of our management team is women and uh, we're rolling and doing great. So it's like some of these old school biases are really silly. So. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that, it is how it is. That's usually what I, my, my outlook is on the bias. And I like to, I usually like to address these things like early on in the conversation even. But at the end of the day, like I said, we'll never know. We'll never know because nobody will tell you. And because also a lot of these things are subconscious. So that's, again, it should not matter what the founder's capability to fundraise is. Like they, they need to be super passionate about what they do. And the professionals need to be able to explain why this company has amazing potential and how investors will be able to make money with this investment, right? If private companies need access to capital markets just as the public, and we're going to get there with, with dips. For sure. What's your approach to content, Ben? I see you have a lot of content on LinkedIn. You're doing a podcast here, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. YouTube stuff rolling. What's your approach to that, Ben? How's that helped with the growth journey? Yeah. So it's interesting you're asking that, Brad, because I never viewed content as necessarily a marketing tool. I always was passionate about creating content I love. And the reason for me to start a podcast was so that a selfish reason so that I could learn about what my colleagues in the market were doing. And I was having calls with them and I was like, wow, like I'm get, there's so much gold in these conversations and things that I'm learning, everybody in the industry should know. And they should hear about these companies. Some of them might even be competitive to mine, but to ours, but I, I always viewed it as an ability to push our industry forward. And so that's where I started interviewing people. And then I've expanded it into other people in the industry that can explain different aspects. So if I met a lawyer who was brilliant and understood compliance for uh, digital securities, I would interview them. And especially if there was like a recent court case or something like the SEC, for example, Ripple case, uh, famous happening in, in the last two weeks, which, may, which actually gives me an idea. I should probably talk about that on a podcast with someone. And I am not an expert in many of these things, right? And uh, there are a lot of podcasts and a lot of people out there that are reading the news, putting things together and talking about it. And I was like, I don't, I need to give the stage to people that really actually live this day to day. I have a course that I created again, because I was tired of talking to clients about same things over and over again. And I was like, why don't I just record a 10 hour course about what the clients are going to go through, everything they need to know A to Z. And then it became a popular course for people. And I was like, wow, I didn't even, I was just thinking about doing this. And then 
people were asking for it. So we just put it on a teachable, I think, or some platform. And then the podcast, the same thing. Like people are asking me, like, when is the new podcast coming? I was like, oh, I'm, I'm surprised people are even listening, but that's and then blogs it just came out of me like poured out I was like we need and I hear something I'm just get so excited I we got it we ought to come out with a blog about it because people need to hear people need to listen people need to read and then people are waiting for new content to come out and I was like okay so I think that approach to content as something you're super excited about and want to share like that really works for us and that really worked for me absolutely love that so if you had any advice for those out there listening today that are entrepreneurs, building their companies, growing, scaling, what would that be? Any closing words of wisdom or advice? Wow. You know what? There's so many things to say here, but I think the most important thing for entrepreneurs is just to be themselves and to bring their strengths and listen to their gut when moving forward. There's so many, so much advice on raising capital, so much advice on getting clients and so on and so forth. And in this time when there's not enough liquidity in the market, I would say be very prudent with spending. And that's also for showing investors that you are spending their money wisely. And just in general, when you are tight on the budget, you're forced to be much more creative. And I think every entrepreneur out there should be mindful of that. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Brad. Have a great day.